We thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for uh, it being rain and not snow this morning. Uh, we thank you for that. Uh, we pray for um, just the rest of our um, body that is traveling and on its way. Pray that you would, um, I pray that you would uh, protect them, keep them, uh, help us as we consider continue to consider uh, how to read your word better um, and uh, how to listen and. Uh, uh, Lord, we, we want to understand your word, not just so we can understand it, but so that we can know you and love you. Um, so help us this morning, um, help us to think clearly, um, and uh, just grant us good conversation. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so uh, we have uh, talked a lot about uh, the, um, the idea of interpreting scripture. We always interpret before we imply what are we doing when we're interpreting? We're looking for the human author's intent because the human author's intent is God's intent because that's the idea of inspiration is God uses his um, spirit. He carries along the individual using their backgrounds and style and all of that uh, to communicate what God wants to communicate. Observation, interpretation, application is our basic flow of working through any given text. Uh, and then we've just kind of walked through different genres. So we started with New Testament epistle because that is familiar um, and probably in some sense the easiest, uh, although Paul is plenty hard, um, but, uh, and others as well, but um, more familiar with it, more explicit commands. We watch the conjunctions. That's a big thing uh, when you're looking at um, epistle. Uh, we've talked about uh, poetry, the Old Testament. Um, we've talked about parallelism and such a little bit. We talked about narrative the last couple weeks. Uh, following the plot, following the characters, uh, filling in gaps. It's more implicit. It's more, um, uh, you have to, to draw more implications with narrative, although it is still teaching theological truth. Um, and so now we're going to shift to another genre. We're going to talk about law. We're going to talk about law uh, because this is an important um, genre of scripture and uh, everyone has ideas about the law and there's a lot of confusion about law and how do we approach the law as New Testament believers. So it's worthwhile to take some time to talk about it. Um, so today is going to be kind of just setting that framework. I'm going to give you a big picture framework for how to think in general about uh, law. Now, when we use the term law, it, has, it is used in multiple ways in the scriptures itself. What are some of the ways that the scriptures use the term law? Or what is it, maybe another way to ask that, what, um, uh, what, uh, when scripture uses the term law, what are some of the things it refers to? What's that? Okay, Ten Commandments, and by, um, and by extension, uh, the the laws of Moses, right? So that's one. What are others? I heard another one. Yeah, so the first five books of, um, you know, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they're known as the Torah, which is this word for law. Uh, and actually, uh, if you watch how law is used um, throughout uh, Old Testament and uh, especially New Testament, law can also encompass the whole Old Testament. So sometimes the law is used as a shorthand way of referring to all of Scripture. Sometimes. Not very often, but it is um, sometimes. Okay, uh, Eden, you had your, your hand. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so God's Word in general. So you got God's Word in general, 
first five books, maybe even up to the whole Old Testament. Uh, you've got the, the commands, um, the Old Testament commands. Uh, you could even, there's an argument, I mean, sometimes, especially when you're looking in, uh, let's say, Paul in particular, sometimes it seems like he uses the word law to refer to principles or just kind of the category of law in general, not even necessarily just the Mosaic law. So, uh, there are many different things that you could take the law to be. But when we are talking about interpreting the scripture and talking about the genre of law, uh, we are talking about the principles, commands, and stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, so we're talking about the Old Testament law, which is contained in the first five books of uh, the Old Testament. Now, I'll make a comment about that. Obviously, the first five books are not all um, like legal code. There's plenty of narrative, right? We've been talking about that. There's plenty of narrative, uh, but within that, embedded within that narrative, is legal code. And so when we talk about the genre of law, we're talking about that legal code. We're talking about principles, commands, stipulations from the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, the Israelite Covenant. I use those interchangeably. Um, so that's what we're talking about. Uh, this is a big deal because um, uh, first five books, and especially the Mosaic Law, form a foundation for kind of a lot of the narrative that comes in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So as Christians, uh, we got to understand how do we handle this, okay? How do we handle law? How do we read Leviticus? How do we read Deuteronomy? How do we read um, even parts of Numbers uh, and certainly parts of Exodus, and how do we interpret and apply them in a legitimate way uh, for us as New Testament believers. And there's lots of ideas about that, and there's lots of dispute about that. So I want to try to give you a framework for thinking through it. So how do we do this? First, we got to take a step back, and we got to talk about covenants. If you don't understand covenants and the covenant backdrop of the law, you're going to have a lot of trouble with it, Okay. So, uh, we, um, we've been talking, um, I, I try to keep bringing it up uh, when it's appropriate, but we keep talking about covenants even in, um, the, from the pulpit. Uh, you remember before we started into Matthew, I did that series, three-week series on kingdom through covenant, because covenants are the things that, that uh, frame or advance, I should use that word, advance a lot of the storyline of scripture. So, you've got the original Adamic covenant, You've got the Noahic Covenant, you've got the, um, the Abrahamic Covenant, you've got the Mosaic Covenant, you've got the Davidic Covenant, and you've got the New Covenant. Okay, so when we talk about law, we're dealing with one of those covenants. We're dealing with the Mosaic Covenant. But it has a relationship to these other covenants. In particular, it has a relationship to the Abrahamic Covenant. All right, I'm going to call on those who... Um, uh, Many of you, we've been talking about the Abrahamic Covenant, either in the, my Friday night Bible study or just other contexts. What is the Abrahamic Covenant all about? Yeah, the ladies should know about this, uh, too. Land, seed, and blessing. Three words, right? Be beautiful, right? A plus, gold star. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, the Abrahamic Covenant is all about a particular land, Seed, meaning a lot of offspring, but also one particular offspring that's going to be equated with um, the, uh, the uh, male offspring of the woman who's been promised from Genesis 3.15. So there's two aspects of seed there. And then blessing, a blessing to uh, Abraham in particular, blessing to his offspring, 
but also in Genesis 12, 3, through, your, uh, through you all the nations, all the families of all the clans of the ground, uh, all the clans of the ground will be blessed. So there's blessing not only for Israel or what will become Israel, but also the nations. And that's an important um, component because what the Abrahamic covenant does is it welds the fate of the world to the fate of one particular people, okay? So um, now, why do I talk about the Abrahamic covenant so much? Because I thought we were talking about law. Well, the law um, is um, connected with the Abrahamic covenant, and I want to make that, um, that clear. So first, what happened before God gives the Mosaic covenant? What immediately happens before God gives the, the Mosaic Covenant? The Exodus, right? Why did God do the Exodus? Because of the Abrahamic Covenant. Because he said, I'm going to rescue this people, and I'm going to give them, bring them into the right land. They're in Egypt. They're in the wrong land. There are a lot of them, so there's the seed aspect of that, the multitudinous of offspring. But if you look at the Exodus narrative, it is because of the Abrahamic covenant, and God even in Genesis 15 says, hey, this is going to happen in the future, you're going to be imprisoned, and then I'm going to rescue you, and then God makes good on his promise, and he rescues them, okay? Um, so God already has a relationship, a covenant relationship with Israel before he gives the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law. He already has that relationship in place. And that's important to keep in note. So, with that backdrop in mind, uh, go to Exodus 19, which is the chapter before the giving of the Ten Commandments, which is the start, uh, really, of the giving of the law. So, go to Exodus 19. Uh, Exodus 19, um, 3 through 6. And you might have to back up just a little bit um, into verse 2 to get the full sentence. So if someone wants to read kind of that full sentence, last part of verse 2, but then through uh, verse 6 in Exodus 19. Okay, so this is, the Exodus has, um, or at least part of it, has happened. They come to Mount Sinai. This is the first thing God says to kind of preview what he's going to do. So when he talks about the covenant here, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant that he's about to give. What is, according to 19.3 through 6, what is the main purpose of this covenant? Yes, to establish a priesthood, uh, and even more specifically, uh, a kingdom of priests. Referring to who? Israel, the whole nation of Israel, right? So 
Adam was to be a king and a priest, um, and uh, we can trace that theme through, but it brings us here. Israel, as a nation, is to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They serve before God. Good. So, and we're going to see that. That's a big theme in uh, throughout the law, right? The, the presence of God amongst this people. So that's where we get the tabernacle and the temple. God's presence and His people uh, is dwelling in connection with the tabernacle. What else do priests do? So they serve before God, but what else do they do? They intercede, right? They intercede. They are mediators between God and uh, others. So if you think about Israel as a kingdom of priests, they are to be an intermediary nation between themselves and all the nations of the world. Uh, that makes sense because that's even going back to the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, through this nation, all the clans of the ground are to be blessed. Okay, so you start to see that purpose. So at least we know part of the key purpose of this law is for Israel to function as a kingdom of priests and a mediator nation to the rest of the nations, okay? So that, that, um, that is uh, a key purpose uh, for what Israel is supposed to do with the law. There's more to it, but that is a key purpose. It's prefacing uh, before the giving of the law, okay? So how does the law work? Um, first, the terminology when we use the word law, um, in that usually in the Old Testament translates the word Torah. I already mentioned that word. That is a Hebrew word that just means instruction. Okay, so if you were to look at the verb form of that, it would be to teach. Uh, the noun form, Torah, or at least this particular noun form, means instruction. Now, just from our English standpoint, what is the difference between instruction and law? Or how do they, I mean, there's overlap for sure. I'm not denying that. But what, what's, what's the, the differences between those? Yeah, so instruction, it can incorporate, I mean, even as we think about things like Proverbs, etc. There can be punishment that you dole out for the purpose of instruction, but it's broader than that, certainly, right? Instruction is for someone's good. Uh, uh, they don't know. They need to know. Um, so instruction is broader. W versus law, what do we think of law? Statutes, Statutes rules, regulations. Um, and, you know, even to kind of connect with the punishment thing, if you break the law, you expect punishment, Okay. Now, it's kind of, un, uh, and some translations have tried to work at this to render Torah in the Old Testament more as instruction rather than as law, because as English speakers, we hear those words and we understand them differently. So you got to keep in mind that the, yes, there are, I'm not denying, there are rules and regulations. There are obviously rules and regulations. I mean, the Ten Commandments, they are rules, they are commands, there's no doubt about it. And yet there is a purpose of instruction behind all of those commands. Especially given what we just saw, what uh, is Israel to be? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation to mediate the knowledge of God to the rest of a fallen world. So they need instruction uh, to how to live in relationship with their redeeming God. They already have redemption as a nation. I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about as a nation. They already have a redemption 
they have a, um, uh, a relationship with God who saved them from slavery in Egypt. Now the question is, how do you live rightly in relationship to this God uh, for the purpose he has for you and for, um, for knowing him, for obeying him? What does that look like? Okay? So you want to keep in mind the broad idea of the law is really instruction. Okay? Yes, there are commands. We need to talk about those. So let's talk about them. Uh, now, Patricia, I think, uh, mentioned uh, one of the first things we think of when we think about law, which is what? Ten Commandments, which is uh, what we get in as the first installment of the covenant in Exodus 20. Um, let's go ahead and read them. Uh, it's always good to, to reread and visit these. So, uh, Exodus 20... Uh, 1 through 17. Um, someone, yeah, someone read 1 through 8, and then we'll read the rest. So Exodus 21 through 8, someone read that. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, through, no, I, you're right. I, I messed up. Um, through 11, please, if you don't mind. Okay, so first uh, five um, uh, uh, commandments deal with what, generally speaking? God, yeah, vertical. It's a vertical, your vertical relationship with God and how that is expressed and um, guarded in a variety of ways. The Sabbath is central uh, because, uh, well, what's the big deal about Sabbath? He even references it here. It goes back to creation. It's connecting Israel with this creator God and the idea that this God is bringing rest to the world, and so you reflect that as a kingdom of priests in resting on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, so um, in our calendar anyway. So, um, uh, so we, uh, but, but even that idea of Sabbath um, is connected with the idea of sacred time and sacred space. Um, Garden of Eden is the prototype temple 
and God makes man, and then on the seventh day, he sanctifies it, so you've got sacred space and sacred time to meet with God. Okay, now the remainder, someone go ahead and read uh, 12 through uh, 17. Okay, what's the last five all about? What do they generally deal with? Towards one another. So you've got the vertical and the horizontal. And that's a big deal when you think about the law in general, is uh, what, what did Jesus say, right? You can boil, uh, and even Paul said this as well, right? You can boil down the law to two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The vertical, and the vertical flows into the horizontal. If you don't have the vertical, you're not going to have the horizontal. If you don't have the horizontal, it shows that you also don't have the vertical. They are tied together, and they're tied together in the commands themselves. Now, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, as they are known in the law, they are kind of like the Bill of Rights for us. They are the basic principles, and I mean, I know the analogy is not perfect, but the Ten Commandments are the basic principles uh, that govern and drive all of the specific commands of the rest of the law. So you can kind of think about the law in miniature is the Ten Commandments, but it's stated in principle form. Notice how absolute these commands are, right? So thou shalt and thou shalt not. Um, uh, what you're going to see, that's one type of command that you see in the law. The other type is if then. If such and such and such and such happens, then do this, 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 and this. So if an ox gores a man, then this is what you do with that. Okay? But even those if-then commands are driven by the principles that are in the Ten Commandments. So at some level or another, you look at a specific command, and you should be able to trace back uh, to one or more of the Ten Commandments um, because the commands, all the specific stipulations in the law ultimately at one level or another connect back to the Ten Commandments. Um, so if you kind of think about it telescoping, uh, we understand that the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Expand that out a little bit. You've got the first five commands uh, for the Ten Commandments, the second five commands for uh, the horizontal relationships. You expand the Ten Commandments out and you get the rest of the law uh, and all of the specific commands. So um, that's kind of how the law is built up. That's kind of how it works in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is like, uh, if you want kind of the, uh, you know, they start being given in Exodus, but then they, they're become, um, even through Leviticus, of course, and then Numbers, we get more commands and more instruction for how do you live in relation to God. Deuteronomy, they're right before they get into the promised land. The second generation of the, you know, the children of the Exodus generation need to know, okay, you're going into this land. How does the application of the law change? And so even in Deuteronomy and how it's built, 
Deuteronomy 5 is a reiteration of the Ten Commandments, and then the rest of Deuteronomy uh, up to a certain point is basically, all right, let's go march. It roughly follows the order of the Ten Commandments. The rest of Deuteronomy does. So you march through Deuteronomy, and you see all these specific commands, and they're kind of going by categories and principles that you find in the Ten Commandments. Okay? Does this make sense so far? Any questions? Like I said, we're doing all of this. I'm trying to give you the broad framework so that when you actually are sitting in the middle of Deuteronomy, you have this framework, you're calling back to this framework, and you know, okay, what do I do with the command, if an ox scores a man, this is what you do. What do I do with that command? You need the broader framework to be able to understand that, okay? Um, now, another thing to keep in mind, when you get into all of those specific commands, like if an ox scores a man, or, um, you know, don't sew two different types of cloth together, or, um, you know, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk, or things like that, um, does the law cover every specific, absolute scenario that Israel is going to face in the land of Israel? No. No. That's not how the law is designed. And we, we have a corollary with us. Uh, do we have law on the books that covers every specific scenario in life? It does not. So what happens when you have a situation that falls in between the cracks of the laws that are on the books, what do you do? If you, something happens and it has to go to court, what do you do? What's that? The principle, exactly. Case uh, and other case law, right? So you might look, all right, we don't have this specific case, but here's a couple other cases that are like that. Let's look at the principles and then let's apply those principles to a new scenario. That's how the law is supposed to work. Uh, we get a bunch of absolute commands, thou shalt and thou shalt not, and we also get a bunch of if-thens, but all of those give principles such that if a new situation arises, you are able, or the judge um, in Israel's system, uh, is able to uh, take those commands, take those principles, and then apply it to a new situation. Uh, so, you like kind of like narrative in a way it's not just the specific commands but it's how those commands could apply also to different scenarios that's how the law is built okay here's another thing um any difference in culture and time um between uh, then israel then and now just a little bit right uh, and so a lot of the things in the commands that you might see in the Torah, um, even you could look at how the, uh, how the culture changed from, let's say, Moses' time to Jesus' time. That's a thousand, no, that's 1,400 years. So a lot changed even then. So when you are looking at the law, you also have to strongly consider the cultural context of what is happening, right? Because that's going to govern the application of it, Okay. Now, um, you guys have probably heard this before. You ever heard of the division of the law into different parts? You just, yeah, there you go. So what, what are the three parts that are usually used? You almost got it? Moral. Moral, right? So moral, civil, ceremonial. So the idea is, you know, you're moral, you're dealing with things like don't, um, don't murder. It's moral. <laughs> Uh, civil, uh, you know, if, 
this sort of situation happens between you and your neighbor, and this happens, you know, do the, um, this is how you handle it. It's civil. And then ceremonial, you're thinking about things like Leviticus. Here's how you approach the, the altar. Now, that sounds nice. What's the problem with dividing the law up like that? Exactly. It's all interconnected, right? Remember, what are we dealing with? We are dealing with a covenant. We are dealing with a... Um, God already has a relationship with his people, but he's calling them to be a kingdom of priests, and he's instructing them, here's how you perform that function. Here's how you live in relationship to me to do this. And so um, moral, civil, and ceremonial are all interweaved and interconnected. So that division of civil, ceremonial, and moral is something we've created. Is it, are there different laws? Are there civil laws? Are there ceremonial laws? Are there moral laws? Well, of course. But what do people usually do with that division? I don't know if you've heard this before or not, but um, especially as they think about New Testament Christians, what do they usually do with that division? You ever heard this before? Yeah. Yeah, so what tends to happen is they throw out divisions of that. So they'll throw out the civil, and they'll throw out the ceremonial, and say, but the moral still applies. But there's a problem with that, because that's not how the covenant's put together. It's all interweaved and interconnected. You can't tear out parts and say that this part still applies, because it's a covenant. It's designed, it's all interconnected for a particular people in a particular land in a particular place. So I would argue that that uh, division is unhelpful. Uh, it doesn't help us. Yes, there are ceremonial, there are civil, there are moral parts, but it, it's the wrong categories to use because the law itself doesn't use those categories, okay? So um, we got that, we got the division, we got the different commands. Um, now, again, about purpose. What's the purpose of the law? It's supposed to teach a people, uh, a particular people in a particular place, particular time, uh, and even generations of this people for how to live as a kingdom of priests before God. Go to Deuteronomy 6. So you go to Deuteronomy, which is um, the covenant renewal on the plains of Moab before they go into the land. And uh, like I said, there's, there's the Ten Commandments re-given in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6 through basically 11, God kind of um, works through and expands on a lot of the basic principles, the general principles of how to obey this law. And um, one of the central places that unpacks how you view the law and how you view the commandments is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And you guys are familiar with this, but it's always good to come back to. Someone read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9.
Okay. What is the flow, the logic of that text? What comes first? Yeah. God comes first. Who is God? He's the one God. Um, so that comes first. What comes next? Yeah, loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength because of who he is and because he's your God, the God that rescued you in the exodus from Egypt, the God who uh, uh, made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So relationship, so God comes first, relationship with God, and then what? Yeah, preparing for future generations with what? Yeah, how the commands apply to you. The sequence is absolutely important. The sequence is God, who God is. He's redeemed you. He's your God. What is your response to him? Love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, obey. What is the difference between that and saying, um, okay, here are all these commands. Do them so that you might have a relationship with God. It's backwards. It makes it based on works. The law was never based on works. It was always based on grace. The same way, different applications, different principles, but we need to understand this, that the law was always based on grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Sure. Sure. So, is there a place for law, for instruction, for command? Well, absolutely there is. It's where you put it. Okay? So, what is God's design for the law? Where do you put it? You put it in the, sequen- in the proper sequence of a relationship by grace that God himself initiates and does. The response is love, and the response of love works its way out into obedience from commands. You reverse that, and you say that Obedience to commands is what, um, what earns me a relationship with God. Now, that's legalism. So, flipping the order is all it takes to go from uh, a grace-viewed, a proper view of the law to a form of legalism. The difference is not commands versus not commands. The difference is what is motivating your obedience. Do you see the difference between that? It is absolutely essential. And it is absolutely essential to have that mindset about God's purpose for the Old Testament law. Because sometimes, oftentimes, the law, the Old Testament law, gets a bad rap because, um, well, you know, uh, God just set up the system where they had to earn their relationship with God and they couldn't do it and it stunk. um, But then that's where we get the new covenant. But that's not actually how God set it up. 
uh, it's still the same principles. Uh, relationship by grace um, de- built on dependence on God and his redeeming work um, that leads to love, which leads to obedience. And that's how the law is supposed to be viewed. With also the added idea of function. Uh, who is Israel supposed to be? Back to Exodus 19, what are they supposed to be? Oh, yeah, kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So they have a job, and part of fulfilling their job is obeying the law, driven out of love. But as they obey the law, if you were to turn over to Deuteronomy 28, the end, after all the commands and stuff, Deuteronomy 28 gives what probably one of the chapters we're most familiar with. It's a foundational chapter for how we understand the narrative unfolds in the rest of the Old Testament. You've got blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, right? So you read Deuteronomy 28, first half, actually not even a half, it's more like a a third or a quarter, uh, is uh, here's what God is going to do as you obey this law. He's going to bless you in all of these ways. How does God bless the nation of Israel when they obey in general? Prosperity defined as what? Yes, you're right, absolutely, prosperity, but what, what aspects of prosperity? Children? Yeah, uh, yeah, so material possessions, for sure. Children, land, blessing, right? It's the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. As they obey, um, God is going to bless them with the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Now flip it around. When God curses them, they don't, they don't obey, so God curses them as a nation. What is he, obviously we're summarizing a lot of text here, but what does he curse them with? War, you're few in number, death, they lose the land, uh, they lose all their possessions, they're in a bad spot financially and materially and all these other things. It's the exact opposite of the Abrahamic covenant, Right? That's important to note because it tells us how the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, the law, interrelate. If you obey, it blesses you with the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. If you disobey, it does not. Now, what's the, what's one of the, the, there to be a kingdom of priests because the the Abrahamic covenant says you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. So your obedience and your disobedience is not just about you as a nation, it's also about how you reach other peoples. Because that is also how the law functions. As God blesses this nation for their obedience, it's supposed to attract the nations of the world. Go to Deuteronomy 4. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. Go ahead and uh, someone go ahead and read that. Deuteronomy 4, uh, 4, 5 through 8.
So what's supposed to happen if they obey? Yeah, they're supposed to influence the nations. Part of that is, uh, essentially, it's attractionalism, um, that God's going to be blessing them, like, super abundantly, because, with the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, not as an end in and of itself, uh, but as part of the way that God is attracting uh, the nations so that they might know the one true God. Um, that's how you have to understand the framework of how the law is supposed to operate. That's why you get later books like Jonah. The book of Jonah is really an indictment against Israel. It's not written to Nineveh, it's written to Israel. Because what happens is Jonah goes to uh, uh, Nineveh, and people fall all over themselves from the nations repenting. And uh, while the prophets back in Israel are saying, hey, repent, 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 obey God's law, fulfill the function that you're supposed to have, because when you do that, you're also supposed to reach the nations. Um, so it's not just about Israel obeying, it's also about how are you going to fulfill God's function for you in reaching the nations, okay? Uh, questions up to this point. This is really important framework stuff. We haven't even talked about, like, okay, I'm reading Leviticus, I'm, or I'm doing my devotions in Deuteronomy, you know, how do, I, how do I interpret that? You need to have this framework to be able to view the commands in the law rightly. Bruce, did you have your hand up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He understood God's character and he understood what he's going to do. And he's like, Israel, you're not performing your function. You're like Jonah. You're not obeying. You're not obeying God's commands. Uh, and so you're not only crippling yourself, you're crippling your 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 outreach to the nations. Um, but God still gets his job done uh, regardless. So, Okay, one um, other thing, uh, the Sabbath. Covenants have signs. So Abrahamic covenant has the sign of circumcision. The Mosaic covenant has the sign of the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath. So uh, Exodus 31, 12 through 17, you don't have to turn there, but that's one among many other places that we could turn to, but probably one of the most explicit, where the sign of the covenant, the uh, Mosaic Covenant, is the Sabbath. That's why keeping the Sabbath is such a big deal. Because if you don't keep the Sabbath, then you're saying, I'm not part of this covenant. And you're rejecting God. So um, that's why the Sabbath, amongst other commands, is very important as we you know, see the rest of this biblical storyline unfold. Okay, a couple more things. Um, the tabernacle. What's the big deal about the tabernacle and the temple? What's it symbolize? God's presence. Uh, that's the key thing, right? This is where God's presence is dwelling amongst this people. It's also supposed to be reminiscent of what? Eden. Right? It's supposed to say, okay, uh, because of Eden, you're in a fallen state. You cannot draw near to, a sinful people cannot draw near to a holy God except as he um, provides the means to do it. So you've got the tabernacle, you've got the temple, you've got the tabernacle having things like cherubim and all this cool um, you know, gold and silver, and you've got pomegranates and palm trees. It's supposed to remind you of Eden. Um, it's a step back towards Eden, uh, and so while you are going through the law, you get, you know, stuff in Exodus, but you also get stuff in Leviticus, obviously, um, that talks about laws regarding the tabernacle, 
in connection with the Mosaic Covenant. Why? Because the, the tabernacle is the big deal. This is, uh, this is the closest in this nation, in this people at this time, at that time, that, you, um, that people can draw near to God and can in measure, not fully yet, but in measure, uh, have some sort of return to God's presence in Eden. It's still very distant. Um, it's still very distant, but that's where we, when you think about something like the commands in Leviticus, that's the backdrop that you have to keep coming back to. What's this stuff all about? It's about drawing near to God's presence and a return to Eden. Okay, so as you think about the law as a category and as a genre, you got to keep it in covenantal terms. The Israelite covenant administers the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. The law is an administrative covenant. Um, and it's ultimately not just for Israel, but also so that they, they as Israel, might reach the nations of the world. Okay, we're going to end there for today. What, any final questions? And that's the big question, um, and we'll probably talk about it more next week, but here's the short answer. So, am I, um, that's the right way to say this, um, am I under the covenant of the Mosaic Covenant? No, I'm not an Israelite, so I'm not under the Mosaic Covenant. However, what covenant am I a part of? The new covenant. What's one of, this, one of the stipulations, the key stipulations of the new covenant, and we'll talk a little bit about this next week because we still need more framework, is that the law, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, the law, the Torah, gets written on the heart, meaning you're going to obey from the heart God's commands. Am I bound to keep God's law? Yes, absolutely. Um, same mindset, not as to earn a relationship with God, but because I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I am bound to obey God's law. What is the foundation of all law? And next week we'll talk about that there's law outside. There's, a law, there's law in Eden. There's commands in Eden. Um, there's the category of command is broader than the Mosaic law. The foundation of all forms of God's law is God's character. The expression of the law is an expression of God's eternal moral character. God never changes in his moral character. So as I think about as a new covenant believer, as I think about obedience, um, I want to match my actions with God's character in different situations. So, um, I can look at the Mosaic law, not being under that covenant, 
But knowing that that covenant is an expression of God's eternal moral character with a particular land and a particular people, and I can look at the principle, no matter what the command is, and then uh, translate that into proper application in this time. So I can eat bacon. Praise God. Um, uh, I can eat bacon... But when I read that section of Leviticus, or Deuteronomy, as the case may be, I can look at that command and I can say, all right, the application is different because I'm in a different time, under a different covenant, with a different function, um, uh, in a sense. I am to be a holy, part of a holy people like Israel, and what were those food commands all about? It was in that time, at that place, with that people, here's how we display holiness in everyday life. And so now I'm in a position to say, okay, the principle is holiness uh, in everyday life. How do I translate eating bacon or not to something in today's time and place? So that's where you have to do some inference. Uh, but what the root of it is, is the principle, because the underlying principle is an expression of God's eternal moral character, and I'm always bound by that, no matter where, what covenant I'm under. Right, Romans 10. Right, and I would, I, would just, I would say that a little bit differently in the sense that Paul's not opposed to law. He's opposed to earning. He's, opposing, he's opposed to works of the law. He's opposed to flipping it around. He's opposed to saying, all right, I do the things that I'm supposed to do, so therefore I have a relationship with God. He is absolutely opposed to that. So that's where he comes out swinging. Um, he is not opposed to the, to the proper way, which is how the law was designed in the Old Testament, uh, you have a relationship with God by grace through faith. It's always been that way. Um, and so now, uh, what's the law about? Yeah, you can still learn from it. It's training. It's instruction. Um, which is why you can look at something like Romans 13, where Paul, you know, after talking about law and all of that stuff, later in Romans 13, he's like, um, uh, hey, uh, um, love God, love your neighbor, that's the fulfilling of the law. He's still interested in the fulfilling of the law, but based on the relationship that you already have with God. Um, you can think about it another way. Second um, Timothy three sixteen and 17, Paul says, all scripture, 
is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. Well, that includes the Old Testament law. It has to. They still have their New Testament under construction. Um, so that what do they have to guide, to instruct them, and what does it look like in general to live? Yeah, with, with the proper application change, what does it look like to live as a holy people with a holy God? Well, we got the law that instructs us. But the application changes because I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I can eat bacon, right? As a Gentile Christian, as a Jewish Christian, I can eat bacon. Um, so the application changes, but the principle doesn't. And so that's, that's where, as New Testament Christians, that's the basic logic of how we can look at something in Leviticus or Deuteronomy and say, all right, I can still look at this for instruction, even though I'm not part of that covenant. So... Uh, we're going to end there because we're already 10 past. Um, if you guys got more questions, I love your questions. I love how you're thinking along with this. It's difficult, uh, but uh, that's kind of the basic framework. We'll talk a little bit more about it next week, and then we'll try to practice a little bit. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your law, um, that it is a gracious gift if we understand it rightly. And so we just pray for grace even in our own time, in our own place. Uh, first, to understand your commands, Lord Jesus, and what you would have us do and to also understand uh, the Old Testament law. And Lord, help us to live as your people, a holy people uh, connected with a holy God through Jesus Christ. Lord, guard us. Guard us from turning that around. Guard us from ever making um, our works, our deeds, um, our actions, the foundation of our relationship. Lord, guard us from such legalism. Uh, but Lord, help us to see the relationship that you have purchased with us by grace through faith and then to live that out um, in obedience. Uh, Lord, we, we pray for grace for that. We pray for help this morning as we gather, as we think, as we, um, as we pray, as we sing, as we hear your word preached. Um, Lord, please uh, grab a hold of our hearts. Help us to be obedient. Help us to love and to honor you. We pray these things. We ask them in the name of Jesus. Amen.